This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley bringing the best of my Times radio show. It's politics without the boring bits live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, Norman Fowler had a front row seat to British political history for the, well, the best part, of course, of his century. In Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, he was the health secretary who oversaw the AIDS crisis. Then he worked for John Major, and then he saw what happens when the Tory party falls out. Really fascinating interview coming up with him in just a moment. Today's columnist panel, Helen Lewis and James Marriott, on everything from whether or not Tories have lost the plot, the trans issue in the Labour Party, and what sort of Christmas tree do you have so all the big contentious issues being discussed but before that as we always do on a Friday let's take a look at what we learned this week We learn that Rishi Sunak thinks none of his 350 Tory MPs are up to the job of being Foreign Secretary but luckily this guy came wandering through the door Right We learn that dreams don't come true a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. Sorry, Savannah. We learn that Keir Starmer's been on one of his joke-telling courses again. The country's first AIPM. And yet his big idea is to keep turning his government on and off and hope at the wall and hope that we'll see signs of life. We learn that anything Keir Starmer can garble, Rishi Sunak can garble as well. The number one challenge facing countries up and down the family countries up and down the family. We learned what it sounds like when I sneeze on air. It's like a yappy dog. Uh, we learned that when SNP Minister Michael Matheson denied his children helped run up an £11,000 bill on a government iPad on holiday. Was there any personal use? No, it was made very clear in that and Parliament investigated this issue. What he meant was... The simple truth is, you were watching football matches. We learned James Cleverly can't remember where he works now. I want you to feel that you can speak with me uh, and my team at the Horn Off. Uh, for, um... uh, he learned, he also can't remember, if he said what Yvette Cooper says he said. He may even, on occasion, have privately called it batshit. Which sent everyone on the morning media round... Batshit. 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 But it's OK, because as I told Mariella, we've checked the off-con rules. Mm. Batshit's fine. Fine. Batshit, batshit, batshit. And that is what we learned this week. Now it's time for these two. The Columnists on Times Radio. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically bashing away at my column. Ah, he's here. James Marriott's here. James, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. But we've got no Indian night this week. I think she might have started a Christmas. Where's she gone? I don't know. She started Christmas shopping. Yeah, I maybe. don't know. I was reading her email roundup of things we should be buying for Christmas this morning. Oh, that's useful. I haven't looked at that. Tin of biscuits for £20. £20? That's very Indian night. <laughs> uh, but that's all right, because instead of Indian night, we've got the brilliant Helen Lewis of the Atlantic. Hello, Helen. Hello, I'm very much the pound shop Indian night. <laughs> that's what you're getting here. How much do you think is an acceptable amount to spend on a tin of biscuits, Helen? 
I mean, I, I would say anything above £10 is a very classy biscuit. Uh, and you, uh, Even yeah. £10, you still want a decent tin afterwards. I am quite intrigued. What were these £20 biscuits oh, I can't offering? Remember. What distinguished them? <laughs> I can't remember. They were, they were, um, I think the main thing that distinguished them was they were from Fortnum's. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, well, No, I can't find them. Books, no. Anyway. We can I'm, all imagine. Yeah. They, they, yes, it was a big, it was a big long tin. Anyway. Let's get on and turn our attention to the news. Um, we get to the end of this week then with the, the Tory party doing what the Tory party does best, which is having a total meltdown all week. And by the end of the week, they've sli- slightly lost the plot. So you've got Suella Barman setting out her five tests today to make the Rwanda policy work, it, which includes making MPs sit all over Christmas by cancelling their holidays. Simon Clark, former cabinet minister, uh, has gone even further and suggested that if um, the any changes to the law were blocked by the House of Lords, then a general election should be called. That would, this is the obvious solution. When you're 30, 25, 30 points behind in the polls, uh, call a general election. I know you've written this week, Helen, about the, the slightly retro feel of the, uh, the reshuffling that this week. Are, are we entering the point now where just... Tory MPs are just shouting out anything in the hope that something works. That's what I said this week in The Atlantic. I was like, we've entered the panda phase of this administration where you look at them and you think, do you even want to survive? You know, you're just <laughs> doing nothing that the kind of person who wants to survive would do. And that's when I, when I read that quote about having a general election, I just thought, you want, do you want to be in opposition? Is that what, is that what you want? Um, and then Suella Braverman in The Telegraph this morning outlining her plans for the boats. Point two seems to basically be saying that Britain could pass a law saying international law doesn't apply to us and we can do what we want. And I'm not entirely sure that's how it works, actually. No. And yet, you sort of wonder... Well, in fact, you you wonder less why she was not a success at the Home Office if she thought the solution to it was passing a law saying, no, 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 you can't touch me, basically. James. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of fascinating to watch, isn't it? This kind of mood of weird hysteria that attends the kind of last... what we assume are the kind of ending ending months... And, and days of a, a political party, people just sort of... I, where does it come from? Do they all decide to go mad? Does it sort of... You almost think there's some kind of virus wafting around Parliament that has just sent everybody kind of loopy. It's sort of interesting how these moods catch hold. It, it, it was... It went, yeah, the way that they sort of tip over from... Because everyone knows divide, divided parties don't win elections. You know, parties with no clear message or strategy or constantly fighting amongst themselves or shouting at their own leaders don't win elections but if they've it feels like they've all now a lot of them have tipped over it was interesting it was un, unnoticed uh uh by a lot of people this week with the number of junior ministers who just announced they were standing down i think you this is the point that you made helen um they just announced they were standing down because they want to go off because they're either uh they just want to try and short their constituency so they don't lose their seats or they've already decided they're off so they want to try and get a job in the private sector the sort of they a lot of them mentally have already jumped to we are in opposition yeah, I think that's exactly right. So Nick Gibb, who's the schools minister and has been for an extremely long time, he's regarded as a very effective junior minister, said, I'm, you know, I want to take a, de- a diplomatic role after the next election. So I need, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time of kind of clear water between holding a ministerial position and that. So I'm out. Um, you know, people like that, I think, went. And actually, already we know that 50 Tory MPs aren't standing for election out of a parliamentary party of 350. So a lot of people have already you know, mentally checked out. And then the other way, obviously, to see the Suella Braverman article is about a firing pistol for the next leadership election. Mm. And the bit that gets me about that is I think if you kind of want thunderously right-wing politics, why wouldn't you, if you're a Tory MP, pick Kemi Badenoch, who puts those politics into a much, frankly, more interesting, intellectually dynamic, rigorous package. You know, I can feel that James Cleverly is running as a, I always think of him as a sort of Jeremy Clarkson-y kind of public figure, you know, as being quite, you know, he went in and gave a speech to his department this week, his new department, the Home Office, that said, you know, I'm with you. I know you all work really hard. You're not the blob, you know. He's sort of running as kind of sane, tough guy who might present a kind of motoring show. And then you will have (laughs) someone who's running as a much more ideological right winger. But I'm just not sure that Swella Brabham has so far made the case that she would be better at that than Kemi Badenoch. And, and also, I suppose, if you are actually choosing a leader, whether in government or in opposition, you do want someone who might have some sort of 
grip and competence and, you know, level-headedness. Popularity. Well, popularity, popularity is another other, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. If you look at the surveys about um, Suella Braverman's ratings, even among 2019 Tory voters, she's not um, massively popular. So you did see this sort of strange outbreak of commentators saying, well, the thing is, all the people saying mean things about her, they're just typical out-of-touch elites. And you were like... The people you're talking about there are voters. Apparently, <laughs> all voters are out of touch elites for not liking her sufficiently. But it's interesting, as we noticed on the uh, on our latest focus group this week. Although the polls, people sort of like Suella Bum for saying the things that other people won't, but then they didn't like the fact that she apparently seemed unable to deliver on any of it. And that's the other problem, the sort of the um, the Grand Duke of York problem. You keep you can't keep marching people up the hill saying, "Oh, we're going to stop," you know, put flights to Rwanda. Actually, if you end up not doing it, people think, well, what are you, what are you yeah. talking it's about? It's kind of hard to try to try and start being, you know, the protest party while you're still in government. And I, I think this is kind of a lot of the mood, isn't it, that, I don't know, after however many, you know, years and years and years in power, you begin to lose your appetite for it. And they probably, you know, they probably need a spell in opposition to kind of start wanting to be in power again because they're not particularly acting like it at the moment. I guess maybe just begin to take it for granted and just start thinking we'll say any, any old nonsense and... And yet, weirdly, the very act of doing that makes their defeat even more likely. Yeah. I mean, it's the strange kind of life cycles of political parties, isn't it? It almost seems like you have to go through the mad phase, we hope, to eventually return to sanity, although how long that will take will be interesting to see. Yeah. And a lot of it will, but that will probably depend on the scale of the defeat. Well, let's look at the other side then. Because uh, all has not been well for Keir Starmer this week, uh, obviously, with the uh, the revolt over uh, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. But then the um, Shadow Cabinet member, Lisa Nandy, defended her strong support for transgender rights in an event in Parliament this week, uh, uh, where she was asked whether or not l- women could trust Labour. She's been criticised previously by J.K. Rowling said that Lisa Nandy had failed to stand up for women's rights in the past, highlighting comments in which she suggested a trans woman rapist could be sent to a female prison. And every time this comes up, Helen, the Labour Party ties itself massively in knots. And actually, Keir Starmer's been on quite a journey already on this issue. Well, it's very interesting, actually, the difference between Keir Starmer's position and Lisa Nandy's position, because during the leadership election back in 2020, Lisa Nandy signed a pledge that said various organisations, including one called The Woman's Place, which comes out of left wing feminist trade movement. She signed a pledge saying that was a hate group. And so it's very difficult to take her seriously when she says, you know, this debate is terrible on all sides. Because if you didn't have sensible, moderate organisations like that involved in the debate, our debate would be much more like the one in America, where it is being had entirely between the extremes of the right and the left. Keir Starmer notably did not sign that pledge. He was the only one of the leadership candidates not to do it. He signed a different, much milder version of the pledge. So I think from the start, he has always been aware that some of the more extreme demands being made were incompatible with leadership of a mainstream party. And, you know, before the summer, Annalise Dodds was sent out to basically chuck the idea of gender self-ID under the bus to say there would need to be more safeguards in the way that there are now. One of which is about the idea about prisons. It's one of the small number of, of issues that really are irreconcilable, zero-sum dilemmas on this subject. And we know from Scotland, we know from the Isla Bryson case, that when you put it to the public, the idea of putting a male rapist in a female prison, almost everybody says, well, that's obviously crackers. Why would you do that? That's obviously a safeguarding risk. So Lisa Nandy has, has kind of managed to get herself into a very unusual and extreme position while thinking that everyone else is an extremist. The thing, James, the thing that uh, we knew we were going to be talking about, this, the thing that always strikes me, if if I read anything on the Times, or if I write anything uh, in my column, which is sort of alludes to the idea that Keir Starmer is going to become Prime Minister, the amount of comments which just say, but he doesn't know what a woman is, it's one of those things that's a bit, you know, Ed Miliband maybe had similar things with his brother, you know, just things which happen very early on in someone's leadership. The sort of the news cycle moves on and everyone forgets about. But for lots of people, it's their defining first thing they think about when they think about Keir Starmer. That's true. Although I do have to say, I wonder how much of a problem it really will end up being for him. There's a very, I mean, well, Helen wrote a very good piece in The Atlantic, I think a couple of months ago, saying that I think her argument, and I may be misremembering it, was that... <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you, James. I, 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 shouldn't, I've not, I, I shouldn't now be reciting your own piece back to you live on the radio. Um, <laughs> luckily, luckily, how this luckily goes. it's not a contentious issue, so it's fine if you, <laughs> but you I, get I, the gist I, wrong. The point, the point I remember Helen making was that the Labour Party had shifted into a more mainstream place in this issue, this issue and that I think a lot of the fight and a lot of the controversy has gone out of it. I certainly think, you know, on Twitter and stuff, you just saw it was such a ragingly contentious mm. thing a few years ago. And I think... You know, I'm sure people are, many people are still angry about it, but I, 
I can't believe it's a make a make or break thing for Labour, especially the so far I had in the polls. I don't get the sense that there's a you know a huge contingent of people who are still willing to punish the Labour Party for this. And Keir Starmer, you know, I think he has now he does now say that a woman is an adult human female. You know, I maybe yeah, he'll say that a bit James, more. In, I both is that right? Did I, did I get it right? With, I agree with you and I agree with myself. For okay, good. I was, I, think, um, I was attempting I to prove entire... what I thought you'd said. Um. That's good. Yeah. I think, um, I think Matt, you're exactly right as well to bring up Gaza in relation to this because the two issues are quite similar in some ways in that for a small number of people, this is an absolutely defining political fight. But I'm not sure that it will move that many votes. And the same thing I think about you know, the vote for a ceasefire. You know, there obviously there are seats at risk um, over that. But actually, the difference to most people between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause, if it's explained to them, does not seem that enormous and great. So I think in both cases, they are subjects which raise a huge amount of emotion. They have genuine things at stake in both cases. These are not people making things up to be upset about. They are real. But the number of people who will switch their vote over them is tiny. Where they do matter is as a signal of where the party is. And I think Keir Starmer said a woman is an adult female for the same reason that he didn't call for a ceasefire, because he wants to be seen as someone who takes tough decisions and is in the same place as the majority of the country. That's such an interesting point. That You're right, the, the very, very uh, contentious, noisy debates ultimately, you know, take place actually in a... There were lots of people who were just sort of watching it from afar thinking, well, there were other things going on in my life. And you're right, maybe, particularly in a big change election, when the question is, do you want the Tories still or do you want the Labour Party? Actually, individual positions and policies on a whole range of things probably won't make that much difference. It's not going to be about how many schools you might build or, you know, it's like, do you want change or not? Um, and that will be, end up being the um, the bigger issue. Uh, right, James, um, uh, well, maybe I feel like now we maybe ought to get um, Helen to tell you what was in your column. Yeah. This is a sort of return to favour. <laughs> um, the promise of vast salaries is tempting our best minds to ignore socially useful occupations, which just made me think, If I, I don't think I've got a socially useful occupation. No, I? me neither. Well, I was aware of an element of hypocrisy. <laughs> I, wrote a column, I wrote a column the other week telling people not to have opinions and I've written a column this week telling people to do useful jobs, which... <laughs> Both things as an opinion columnist, uh, you know, one has to be aware of the potential hypocrisy. But it's something that I find really fascinating. It's one of those things that sort of occurred to me and I started asking people about it who do all the statistics. It, it, it is true that basically whenever I have been to visit universities in the last couple of years, I've noticed so many people telling me that they're going to go and become management consultants or corporate lawyers. And often these are people who would not have, I think, have been doing those jobs when I was at university. And I spoke to some people about it and lo and behold... I think management consultancy is now the most popular career destination for graduates of top universities. Something like something extraordinary, like one in five finalists are, have either applied to be a management consultant or are thinking of applying to be a management consultant. And basically, what's happening is that the salaries you can get at top city firms doing these jobs that I think we'd agree are not the most socially useful jobs ever are now so enormous that they're dragging, I think, all kinds of people from elite universities into these probably not very socially useful careers. And as we know, things like teaching, uh, which has a recruitment crisis, are, are really suffering as a result. And the most talented people are not necessarily any longer doing the most useful things. What do you think, uh, Helen? Have you got a socially useful job? Uh, I like to think that journalism is a socially yeah, useful I job. I understand that 99% of people in the population probably disagree with that. But I think there's two things that I thought when reading James's column. And the first is, I think some of this is a, it suggests why some people are so political only in the sense of like airing their opinions on social media and putting kind of pinning badges to themselves because they're not you know I think there is a certain defensiveness about going out and trousering a load of money we saw that in the Sam Bankman-Fried case right that he was his whole idea was with his crypto stuff I need to make so much money so that I can give it all away and that was his that was his way of making it okay for himself to as it turns out to defraud people out of billions of pounds so I think there's some of that and then I also think some of those whatever you want to call them the kind of progressive identity-based uprisings that we've seen in certain areas academia publishing journalism are also a bit to do with this in that people feel that they have turned down megabucks to do these occupations and therefore they really really expect their employer to have the same values and principles that they do they don't turn up to work in publishing and just go well whatever we're going to publish that's you know you're paying me enough that i'm going to be silent about it <laughs> they feel that that actually what's the point why am i here unless i'm here to do something that accords with my politics that is really interesting. And I, I, I wonder whether actually increasingly what happens is maybe when you're younger, you do go and make some you know, make some money, make some money. And actually then later on in life, maybe you go and do the same job but for a charity or for, you know, 
when 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 there was so much financial pressure right now when you're leaving university, I can see why you'd go and um, and also how are you going to buy Indian Arts biscuits unless you're earning? Yeah, I mean, you want to become a management consultant <clears throat> or something or a banker to buy the twenty quid biscuits. I found them. They're called Toffolossus. Ooh, they are that tof- does sound good though, doesn't it? Toffee, toffee, dates and chocolate. Who wouldn't? Oh no, who I'm, would- out. I'm out of dates. Who wouldn't be pleased, says India. Um, plus they're in a lovely Fortnum's tin. Um, Can we uh, do one of your life? We need to do another of your live food tasting. Yes, I think so. Yeah, 1995 they are. What do you, where do you stand on dates? Yeah, I love a date. Do you? Yeah, I... Um... Was eating dates only Finally, yesterday. This is, this is the sort of this is the sort of <laughs> eating a date only yesterday. This is a sort of highly contentious political debate that they want on Times Radio. <laughs> Helen, why don't you like dates? It just reminds me. Do you remember what we used to call when I was a kid squashed fly biscuits? Yes, I'm sure they had something that was, if not a date, then date adjacent in them, and it was always an well, unpleasant raisins, experience. They? Yeah, they're raisins. But it was always. But it was always an unpleasant experience to just have something slightly squishy inside a, the biscuit. Uh, I think you're format. tarring dates with the brush of the raisin, and it's very unfair. <laughs> what a, <laughs> when... a great sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in the trail. Um, one of my first jobs when I was at the Tour Times, I was sent to the food standards people to go and look at things they'd found. And, you know, people had like, reported finding things, and somebody found a, a, a rolled-up plaster in a box of dates. It's always made me slightly squeamish about having them. Someone else had also found a bath plug and a pasty. Oh. These items are not going on in tonight's <laughs> Christmas Christmas shopping list. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe if you had like you could have like a fake pasty, or maybe a pasty with a bath plug, and you could eat the pasty in the bath. We're back to you eating pasty in the bath. Right. Let's talk about Christmas. Now we're always at the cutting edge of news on Times Radio, and we received a tip off that the Christmas tree that will stand outside the Houses of Parliament is going to be felled today. And uh, it, we can speak to Richard Cooper from Forestry England, who is felling the tree. Richard, good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Where in the world are you and where is this tree? We're up in Northumberland, so uh, a good 300 miles from maybe from where you guys are. But uh, yeah, we're uh, ready to fell this tree at about half past 12. Now, uh, how was it chosen? How big is it? What sort of tree is it? Give us all the, the vital statistics. So we've got a 40-foot Sitka spruce. Um, it's probably around 40 years old, something like that. Um, people know spruces from the classic uh, Norway spruce, which is a, a Christmas tree everyone would have in their house um, years ago. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a big, big, bushy specimen. should be really good. How, do you, how did you pick it? Um, we're on the lookout all year round, really. Uh, we're looking for something with a single stem. It's got to have foliage all the way around. So if you, um, if you think of your Christmas tree at home, you can sometimes have a bit of a, a rubbish side and you put that against the wall. But uh, <laughs> with this tree, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be seen all, from all angles, so it's got to be a really good one. It's got to be good all the way around. It's to, where, where do you stand, James? Are you a, a real tree or a fake tree person? It's got to be a real tree. Yeah? Got to be. How big? 40 foot? Well, living in a one-bedroom flat and it's not 40 foot, it's usually, you usually have to have a slightly pathetic specimen, but um, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the real, it's the realness of the tree really? that counts. It's good the smell. What about you, Helen? Well, hark at Mr. Lardy Dar. No, I got um, an MS fake tree a number of years ago with fake snow on it as well, which is. Um, that's really depressing. Nice. Ooh, I think that's God, very, that I think that's awful, very dark market. That's the most controversial <laughs> opinion you've ever had. But it's really nice. I mean, it's an absolute pain in the backside to get it back into the box. But how do you, James, if you live in a one bedroom flat, are you not hoovering up needles constantly from about December the 1st onwards? Yes. But it's, uh, <laughs> how do you do that to yourself? It's a Christmassy sacrifice. But if you, Richard, have you got any tips on 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 stopping your tree from dropping needles? Is that within your okay, your area one. of expertise? Uh, get a plastic one would be the. Uh, <laughs> you can't so, say uh, that from Forestry uh, England. A Nordman fir is probably one of the uh, the better ones for needle retention. And you need to put them in a bucket of water. Yeah, yeah. a bucket of water. Yeah, do you not put do you not water no. your tree? I have the little um, stand with the screws. Yeah, but you should put water in it. Can you not put water? This is complicated. No, no, no. You need to water it. There's also warm. Wa- you need warm water. Warm water. Yeah, because it um, melts the sap and then it sucks it up. This is news you can use. Well, I'll try maybe. <laughs> what do you do the rest of the time, Richard, when you're not cutting down Christmas trees in Parliament? Yeah, so uh, I've got uh, about twelve thousand hectares I look after. So wow. everything from uh, we've got planting trees to harvesting and uh, and everything in between. So it's. Uh, it's a busy job, and uh, it's nice to have a change and do the Christmas trees at this time of year. So tell me, it's 40 feet. Presumably it's surrounded by other trees. Um, you've been and looked at it. You thought, this looks good from all the way around. How do you cut it down without it sort of crashing on the floor and shouting timber and then being all damaged? 
Uh, we can we can use a special cut with the chainsaw to just sort of fell it very slowly and uh, it, just try to not damage it. Really, that's uh, that's what we do. But uh, yeah. And then what do you do? Put it on the back of a lorry. Yeah, so we put it through a, a like a baling machine. We pull it with a winch through this machine that wraps it uh, wraps it up, similar to as you do for your, like you do when I buy mine from a pub car park. And then uh, and then we put it on the back of a lorry. So. And when will it be up? Uh, about a week's time. That's Helen Lewis from The Atlantic and James Marriott, of course, and you can read him in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, a really, really fascinating conversation with someone who's been right at the heart of politics for such a long time. Norman Fowler's next on The Redbox Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Minister in Margaret Thatcher's government and Conservative Party chairman under John Major, Norman Fowler had a ringside seat to government politics for the latter part of the 20th century. And thankfully, he wrote it all down. The Best of Enemies, Norman's Diaries between 1979 and 1997, shows both Prime Ministers at close quarters and recounts in detail how they rose and fell and caused their party to split apart. We spoke about his early ministerial roles, the AIDS crisis where his health secretary, he issued alarming public health warnings and why he never forgave Thatcher for talking down majorism. But I started by asking why he decided to publish his diaries. Slightly coincidentally, really, but I was anxious to set out my diaries, my remembrances, of that period. I I thought particularly the second period was rather uncovered uh, in the media. I mean, the Thatcher years have been covered, not always accurately, but they have been covered. The Major years haven't been, and the interchange between Thatcher and Major has hardly been touched upon at all. So, I mean, that's that was my motivation. What made you start keeping a diary? Was it something you did as a child and just kept up the habit? Or was it when you realised you'd got a sort of front row seat on history and you thought, I want to be able to remember all this? I think it was much more the latter. I thought, I'm living through, particularly in the first years of Thatcher, um, I'm living through an important stage of history and I'd like to get it down. And I'd like to also set out what I feel as well on the various things. We didn't always agree, Margaret Thatcher and I, and puts it quite mildly at times. <laughs> oh, um, to that. <laughs> but, uh, um, and it, I thought also that it, it was quite a good release uh, to be able to say, well, Margaret Thatcher, for example, on HIV and AIDS, was not exactly expressing my view views on the subject and setting out why I thought thought not. Whenever I've tried to write diaries to keep a diary, I only manage to do it when nothing's happened. And on busy, exciting, dramatic days and late nights, I sort of forget, and then a few days go by, and it sort of defeats the point. How, how 
committed were you to recording all of that? And how, how confident are you that they're a good reflection of what was going on during I that I think period? I'm confident they were good reflections. If you say, how organised a person am I? Um, I think, I mean, moderately so. But I do... And it actually, I think it varies. Sometimes when things are extremely exciting, you find it very difficult to get it all down. On the other hand, you sometimes find it very easy to do so. But uh, I think having read through them all, and I have cut and cut and cut to get it into a, uh, into a book, I think it's a fair reflection. What I'd like it to be thought of is exactly that. I'd mm. like it to be thought of as fair about uh, a description of what was taking place there, which was a rather crucial period in our life. You were a journalist here at the Times. I mean, not obviously in this building. This building existed at that, at that point, uh, back in the 60s. Do you think part of why you were keeping the diaries because you had in mind you wanted to publish it later. The, uh, the journalist in you knew you'd, you'd basically got some scoops on your hands, albeit you couldn't scoop yourself while you were sitting in the cabinet. <laughs> I suppose that might be moderately, I mean, I, moderately motivation. I was a journalist. I was on The Times for uh, nine years, so I knew it all. But I have to say, The Times of my period was quite different from The Times of your, of now. I mean, my period... Um, uh, we didn't have news on the front page, for example. Everyone was anonymous. So it wasn't quite the same uh, um, same driving force as you might have uh, with uh, some of the people today. But you always wanted to be an MP, even from quite a young age. Where did that come from? Who were the, the politicians of the day that, that made you think, I'd quite like to do that? That's a very good question. I mean, I did want to be a, an MP from an early stage. Uh, journalism, I hate to admit this to you as a journalist, uh, was a step to uh, politics. I mean, I loved listening to people like Bob Boothby on any questions and things of that kind. Um, my parents, my, certainly my father, thought I was absolutely crackers to kind of contemplate politics. But when I got to Cambridge, you know, I found a lot of people like Ken Clark and John Gummer and people like that who felt exactly the same as I did. We thought this was, you know, this was great. Opportunities were open, open up to us. It's interesting, I was looking at the, the Cambridge Mafia you became known as. Leon Britton, Ken Clark, as you said, John Gummer, Michael Howard and yourself. Actually, you know... Cambridge doesn't have a great record in recent times of producing prime ministers. They all seem to have, uh, almost all of them seem to have passed the walks. What was it about that period in, in your time at Cambridge, which did seem to produce so many of the people who, actually from all wings of the party, would go on to dominate conservative politics for the, what, the best part of half a century? Yes, I'm not sure. Uh, we've got a um, reunion dinner uh, in about a week's time on this, but uh, I think the real change was that this was the first time that the, if you like, the grammar school products, like myself, uh, were coming on stream. Up to, up to then, politics, conservative politics, had been dominated by the public schools. And if you, you know, you take the group like uh, Ken Clark, Michael Howard, uh, John Gummer, people like that, they weren't products of public schools. Um, and I think it was a feeling of freedom. We could actually now do what we wanted. It's really interesting that, that that sort of new the injection of talent, and then that's what played out over the the coming decades. Let, let's jump ahead then to when you you then you become an MP, you become a minister then is in uh, Margaret Thatcher's government. Before Very you, surprisingly, I became a minister. Well, I was about to ask you that because <laughs> your relationship. Give us a sense of your relationship with Margaret. Well, I Thatcher. never, never, I didn't vote for Margaret Thatcher uh, at that time when she ran against Ted Heath for the leadership. No, when she, I, the I voted for 70s. Ted. Well, I think Mr. Heath's been leader for ten years, and the party decided that there should be a contest. But you can't have a contest without a contestant, obviously. Uh, and I'm one of the main ones. Yeah. And so I was, I was amazed uh, to get a call that I should come and see her, even more amazed when she said, come into my first shadow cabinet. And the reason for that, I think, was that I was working at the time for Keith Joseph. The only answer is more houses. The government are looking to increasing the productivity in the building industry and are basing all their plans during the following five years on reaching and maintaining a level of 400,000 houses a year. In the Home Office, which was my subject, 
And um, Keith hated the Home Office, and so he left it to me, and obviously thought that I was terribly competent in all other subjects. <laughs> I knew nothing about health and nothing about Social Security, uh, but nevertheless, I was promoted on that. Then almost immediately transferred to transport, which was my salad days, which was my opportunity, because transport was absolutely wide open. It was dominated by the nationalised industries, and uh, there were all kinds of opportunities. You know, British Rails, hotels, Glen Eagles. I mean, why run a nationalised hotel? Uh, and all kind, kinds of other anomalies of that kind. So I had a... I had a hell of a good time actually in transport, <laughs> and then I was put back there. I, I, I suppose in those days, where, where in a time when the big political conversation was about privatisation, about the dominance of the unions and labour being in hock to the unions and so on, and you just—it was like shooting fish in a barrel for you. It was rather, and of course, it privatisation. I, th I would claim that I was one of the first of the uh, privatisation ministers. The government launched the Great Rail Sale today. Passenger services will be franchised and freight parcels and stations sold off in the most complicated privatisation so far. I privatised in British Rail. I privatised the National Freight Corporation, which was a very, quite a famous privatisation at the time because it was a management buyout, which we never really... I think, progressed in government. We were always concerned about the bottom line and not about what we were achieving. And British Transport Docks Board, now associated British ports. I mean, we had quite a, quite a lot uh, of successes in that area. They didn't all go... They, well, they all went on to be, a, be, to be successes, but they didn't all go on to stay in the same kind of ownership. <laughs> in that period, then, when you were a shadow minister before getting into government yeah. and embarking on, on all of that, was there a point when you thought, or maybe you still don't think you were wrong, but when you you regretted voting for Ted over Margaret, her her transformation from becoming leader of the opposition to becoming prime minister was pretty impressive and substantial. And then, obviously, when you got to government, it was sort of uh, had rocket boosters put underneath it. Yes, I think I think my motivation was a bit simpler than all that. I mean, my motivation was well, she's the boss, and um, she's appointed me. And um, I'm very surprised to be here, but um, I need to actually do my utmost to uh, defend her policies and to put forward new policies. So there's that really was the motivation. There's obviously a conversation going on right now about, is this like 1997 and Labour coming into power after a long time in opposition? It's clearly, you know, Margaret Thatcher doing that, achieving that in, in 1979. How do you think she sealed the deal with voters like, in that way in 79? In 79, I think it was, I mean, and there were always comparisons with the present day, I think the fact was that the public were totally fed up with Labour. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. And um, it didn't need much to just <laughs> shove it over the, shove it over the, the, the line. Margaret wasn't, I, th I mean, everyone now talks about her as being a great communicator. I'm not sure that she was totally the great communicator at that point. Uh, but as in many things, I mean, it was, the, it was the government that lost it rather than the opposition who won it. Let's turn our attention then to your, your time as health secretary. You touched on it with HIV and AIDS a bit earlier on. You were the Secretary of State for Health at the time, dealing with the AIDS epidemic, and you launched, lots of listeners will remember, the ad campaign, the high-profile ad campaign, with the slogan, AIDS don't die of ignorance. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So far, it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. You had tombstones. It was voiced by John Hurt. It was incredibly powerful. I mean, it still haunts people now. If I have discussed it with my wife, she can remember it very vividly. Was it too much? No, because, um, I mean, the, the position that I uh, faced 
was that um, AIDS was a new disease. We had no cure for it. We had no medicine for it. We had no treatment for it. The only thing that you could do was to warn people who were not affected uh, of the action that they should take to remain that way. I mean, that was the simple thing. Mm. And if you were going to do that, then you need to make your advertising as powerful as possible. And we did. Not everyone agreed. Margaret Thatcher didn't agree. I mean, Margaret, for some reason, took the view that um, it was going to be harmful to young people. I mean, young people seeing these uh, uh, examples, particularly in our leaflet, uh, would say, right, we're going to try that. But I don't think it was ever any any evidence of that whatsoever. But she took it a long way in her opposition. I mean, she got turned down by me. She got turned down by the AIDS committee uh, with Willie Whitelaw. And then finally she... She went to the Home Office and said, get in touch with the uh, uh, obscene publications people and say, see if we can't actually knock it out that way. So we had quite a fight. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. I thought the last part was pretty extraordinary. She went not only to obscene publications, but she also uh, um, went to uh, uh, the news uh, organisation, the news uh, people who were checking these things as well. And it's just extraordinary that my committee, or the Willie Whitelaw's committee, not mine, uh, who had approved all this, should be challenged by the Prime Minister. But we won, I'm glad to say. But it was a long fight and Margaret didn't really ever forgive me. Do you think that because the initial outbreak of AIDS was in the gay community... Yeah. And clearly at that point, you you know, same-sex couples did not have the same rights that they have today. The attitudes were very different. That played a part, do you think, in in the attitude towards what you were trying to do? That actually, if it had been something that only, you know, predominantly in the early stages affected heterosexual couples, yeah. do you think it would have been different? It would, actually. And there was a tremendous amount of prejudice mm. against uh, homosexuals. I mean, a tremendous amount. Small children, some as young as five, when they start school, have actually had homosexuality thrust at them. There has been a promotional exercise on very young children indeed. The churches, many of the churches didn't help, although some at least kept out of the way, uh, which I was uh, grateful for. Uh, But no one really kind of came in on my side. And I had uh, some people who were extremely offensive and extreme offensive in the in the sense that they simply rejected homosexuals and gay people and the rights of gay people out of hand and i it was that which which more or less made me determined to go on it was like a bit the whole new generation of people sort of rediscovered that or discovered maybe the first time of the series it's a sin and they say it's a cancer but you can't catch cancer cancer is not a thing that can get caught it's not like a cold or a cough it's cancer it doesn't transmit because imagine it gay cancer how is a cancer gay i mean what does it look like is it pink where is it is it in the wrist i mean for god's sake you get all these stories and all these rumors and all these nightmares because that's what they want you to think that lot did you watch that and, I did. and understand how i think there's probably a generation of younger people really shocked by what happened in the 80s? Yes, absolutely. And they should, they should be shocked as well. And we should never get back to that. And I'm never sure. I mean, although we think back to the 80s, my campaign and programmes like the one that you mentioned, I don't think we should think it's all over. I don't think that uh, uh, the prejudice has all disappeared. And uh, we need to keep uh, the argument up. We need to continue to argue um, on those on those lines. People don't, quite a lot of people who still are not reconciled to the fact of gay marriage and all that. So, as far as I'm concerned, I would go on fighting in that area, uh, um, I was going to say for the foreseeable future, perhaps as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> um, very good. Well, we should move on then. So then you, you actually resigned from Margaret Thatcher's cabinet before she left, but then you came back as party chairman after the 92 election under John Major. I suppose the high point, really, of John Major's premiership immediately after winning this election that nobody thought he would. Yes, in 92 he did. He won that uh, 92 election. I went round them every day. I wasn't the party chairman at the point. I was 
I suppose I was a special advisor, God help me. And, <laughs> um, and I travelled with him around every day and he was brilliant and he deserved um, to win it. I'm absolutely delighted with the outcome of the general election. Uh, may I say firstly that I feel deeply honoured to have been given the opportunity of continuing the work I've started in the last 16 months. It's been an exhilarating 16 months and it is the most enormous privilege to have the opportunity of serving as Prime Minister. I have absolutely no doubt that he deserved that. Uh, what was really concerning about it was that immediately, almost immediately, um, he had won the election, you found Margaret Thatcher distancing herself from it. I mean, the most dramatic example of that um, was a uh, newspaper uh, article uh, in, in which she simply said words to the effect, Thatcherism will live as long as there are people breathing, but majorism has no future. And, you know, you don't say that. I mean, here there was the, probably the greatest domestic prime minister since the war uh, saying this about her, her, her successor, who she had helped into office. I mean, she, you could say that she, major in many ways, was her creation. There can be no doubt that a new clear mandate to Prime Minister Major offers the best hope of solving our present problems, of continuing the economic advance which the 1980s began, and of ensuring that Britain's reputation rides high in the councils of the world. And then she went completely the other way. That, I think, is was unforgivable. It is striking when you look through the whole, certainly the last maybe half century, probably even before that, that, that often the Conservative's greatest enemy is itself. The, the, the infighting, the, you know, that, uh, that whole period from 92 to 97, for every win that the new Labour scored, there was a... Also a defeat, self-inflicted defeat, whether it's scandal or whatever. And we've seen it again, you know, most of where the Conservative Party are right now in the polls, you could say, is down to the Conservative Party than anything that Keir Starmer's managed to do with Labour. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, what the public want from the Conservative Party and what they've always wanted is good, sound government. And what they haven't had, particularly in the last period, they haven't just haven't had that. I think there's an opportunity now uh, because rather accidentally you've got two rather good people, the uh, Prime Minister and the Chancellor, who can provide that and can provide the things that the country want, like low inflation. I'm a crossbencher now, but if I was to advise, I would say that you should keep on that course. For goodness sake, don't sack the Chancellor. I mean, I've had experience of, you know seeing chancellors sacked, there's no, there's no point in going down that road again. Um, and I, I think that if we did that, uh, that would solve quite a lot of the problems uh, that there are about uh, the electoral position. Whether we've got, whether, I keep on saying we, it takes a long time to get out of that. Uh, Just explain why you're now a crossbencher then and not a Conservative. Well, I'm, I'm a crossbencher because I was Lord Speaker yeah. uh, for five years. And uh, I therefore was obviously independent. And uh, then as I came out of that job, I remained a crossbencher, if you like, or went to the crossbenchers mm. rather than going back to the party. But I do have to say, I have a lingering affection for the Conservative Party and I do not want to see them fall on their face. And at times one feels that's exactly what they're going to do. Obviously one of the most dramatic uh, examples of the crisis we've seen in recent times is what's been played out at the COVID inquiry. You know, a major, major crisis fell both in the Department for Health and more broadly across government, clearly on a much greater scale to the AIDS uh, epidemic, but but, mm. but a similar, yeah. you know, a similar crisis sort of crossing your desk. What have you made of the of the way that people were carrying on in the heart of government? And what would what would Margaret Thatcher have made of Dominic Cummings and Matt Hancock and Party Marty and all the rest? I think that they would have found it incomprehensible. And I find it incomprehensible as well. I mean, how you can have these kind of battles going on inside. I think it's even a wider point than that. I think that, uh, I remember in my time, I did health and social security together mm. as one department. I had one special advisor, Nick True, as it happened, the leader in the Lords. 
Now we have 126 special advisors. We have got a recipe for instability in all this. And I think it was one thing that uh, Rishi could do, and that is to cut back drastically the number of special advisors. They get in the way, they trip over each other, they have their own agendas, and it's just not the way of running a government. You should rely on the ministers, and the ministers should rely on civil servants, and obviously you need some specialist advisors. But to have this number of special advisors, I think, is, is, is completely wrong. Finally, I should just ask you about the House of Lords as well. I mean, you, like I said, you, you have been Lord Speaker. You've been a, a peer there since well, at the early 90s. Is it still fit for purpose? Uh, not entirely, no. No, it's not, not, if I'm to be frank. I mean, it needs to be reformed. Replaced altogether? Not replaced. I think, no, you need it. It's a second chamber, basically, uh, is the House of Lords. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be Lords, but it, you do need a second chamber. What does need to happen, uh, if the House of Lords is to have credibility, it needs to be smaller than it is at the moment. It's ridiculous and it's grown. Uh, the committee that I set up had a very good report, and the result of that was uh, that we would have had 600 peers now. How many have we got now? Over 800 and going going north. So it needs radical reform. And if I may say so, if Rishi, as I'm sure he is, is serious about change, then I think he should have a look at uh, the House of Lords because this is an area where the government, conservative government after conservative government, have done absolutely nothing. So what if he only wants to take long-term decisions for a brighter future? That's what he's all about. It was a year to go before a general election. What could he realistically do to the House of Lords? There are one or two things you could do straight away. You could uh, get rid of these ridiculous uh, uh, hereditary by-elections where any hereditary peers can, can vote. I mean, it's comic opera stuff. Uh, and to have that at this period, so you could do that. And there are a series of things you could do um, instantly. But I think the important thing is to get, if you like, a Royal Commission or something like that, to look over the whole area and to uh, say how the House of Lords can be made more democratic and how it can be made more representative of the different regions. And I think if he was to do that, uh, then we would be making progress. Whether he's got time to do that, he hasn't. obviously hasn't got time to implement it all, but he has got time uh, to do some of these things uh, before the election. Well, we'll see. And, uh, and it'll be a few years' time before we get his diaries, if they exist, uh, chronicling his attempts to do all of that. Uh, Norman Fowler, Lord Fowler, uh, The Best of Enemies, Diaries 1980 to 1997. Oh, uh, now, really good to see you. Thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you very much. Nice to come back to the time. And that's all we've got time for today. Do get in touch about anything that you've heard on the podcast. You can email me, matt, at times.radio. And don't forget, if you haven't done already, head on over to How to Win an Election. It's our brand new podcast. This week, we were taking a look at political comebacks and reshuffles. Peter Mandelson, the triple-time comeback kid, reflecting on David Cameron's comeback alongside Daniel Finkstein and Polly McKenzie. That's How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.